Hello and welcome to Robin's Nest Podcast. Tonight we have my nephew Keith as a guest. He is my oldest brother Jimmy's third son. Hi Keith, how are you? I'm good, how are you doing? Doing good. I had to think about that one. I was like, th third son. <laughs> Yep, I'm number three. So you had older and a younger brother. Yeah, they were, they were kind of timed weird. So Jimbo and Carl are four years apart, and me and Ryan are four years apart, and then there's six years between me and Carl. Oh, okay. So, so how Jimbo's was it? ten years older than I am. How was it being the middle child? Uh, It wasn't too bad. I was the more well-behaved of the four boys, I suppose. I didn't get in nearly as much trouble. So does that mean you were sneakier? Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I was sneaky. So I didn't, I didn't get to really grow up with Jimbo, who we talked to last week. Uh, so Carl was my older brother in the house all the time, and he used to get his tail tore up all the time, and I just figured I didn't want any of that. Yeah, I remember well, I those days. He he did get his ass beat. Lots. Yeah. So I remember being there. I lived with you uh, the summer you were born. And so that must have been fifth grade. And I lived with you again the summer Ryan was born. Yeah, I remember when you were a teenager, and we lived in that old house uh, when Ryan was born, and Ryan was real sick. Yeah, so what um, was that? So he had, uh, so the reflux valve is the valve on top of your stomach that basically when you eat, it opens up and allows the food to come in, and then it closes. Mm -hmm. uh, his used to stay closed, so every time he would eat, it would pile up on that valve, and they would back up into his lungs oh but it they my parents took him to doctors you know his entire life he'd have these episodes where he would choke my you know mom or dad would have to hang him by his ankle upside down and beat his back and help so he threw up whatever was in his lungs and they kept telling taking him to doctors and doctors just basically said there's nothing wrong with him he just eats too fast and then uh, I think right before his second birthday, the doctor finally said, yeah, there's something wrong with him. We need to operate on him. I re Let's see. Yeah, it was before his second birthday because I remember he was in Houston with my mom having the surgery. And it was my first day in kindergarten. And I was so excited about going to school finally. So I was up at like four in the morning. I got myself dressed and I'm sitting on the couch and with my backpack ready to go to school and my dad wakes up at like 5 30 and like i scared the shit out of him as he walked out the door i was sitting right there on the couch wide awake because <laughs> <laughs> when i grew up by the time that we woke up in the morning my dad was already at work so we barely ever saw him especially in the morning time so it was just kind of a, an anomaly that my dad was going to take me to school because ryan, ryan was at the hospital with my mom yeah and i remember uh going to school in texas and you start like so early in the damn morning there. Like we were at the bus stop. It was dark. So I'm noticing that now as, you know, we live in Michigan near Detroit now. And my kids go to school like eight and then they're done by uh, 
2.30. Yeah, that's how it is here. Yeah, and I, we used to be in school by 7.30, and it ran all the way to 4 o'clock. Damn. But was your school year, was it shorter? Because you started school in August there. Yeah, we started mid-August, and then we would finish the week before Memorial Day, so last week in May. So it's still about the same time, because we go Labor Day to, like, the second, third week in June. Yeah, and then we would have, like, alternating years. Like, for Thanksgiving, you would only get Wednesday, Thursday, Friday one year, and then the following year, you would get Monday through Friday. Oh, okay. That's weird. But yeah, yeah, I remember and I, I was like, why are we going to school so early? Like, why the hell do I have to get up this early? Because oh, especially when daylight, daylight savings time first shifts over in uh, I was it, October, November, like it's dark as hell outside when you're outside trying to go to school. Yeah. Waiting for a bus in the damn dark. Number one, a lot of our schools here are not bust. So... I think New Jersey's rule is you have to be a mile or more away from the school for busing. Because I remember when my kids went to school, uh, depending on what way you drove to my house was if we were a mile or not away from the school. Well, of course, they're going to say, oh, well, if you go the shorter route, it's not a mile. And they would not bus my kids. So funny story, the, uh, the, so when you lived there, we lived in the old house and then, um, what street was that? that, I'm thinking Amber, Amber. Yes. And then we moved to the uh, Purdue house, uh, which was like exactly a mile from the school, but the road that we were on didn't have sidewalks all the way down the road. So you would have to walk in the road in order to get around the high grass. A lot of people don't cut their grass year round in Texas. So it gets to be six foot tall. <laughs> with so they snakes used to in pick it? us up with a, with a bus because we were right on that one mile border. And then people would walk like away from the school in order to catch the bus rather than walk to school. Oh. <laughs> so I was in, I was in first grade and uh, I asked, I've been asking my mom and dad if I could ride my bike to school because Carl used to ride his bike to school. And I was like, I want to ride my bike to school. And they're like, no, it's not safe. You know, Carl leaves at a different time. He rides faster than you. It's not safe. So the first time that they allowed me to ride my bike to school, I followed Carl all the way to school, just the miles up the road. And uh, we were riding on the sidewalk because there was no bike lanes on Purdue Road. It was just two-lane road. So that afternoon, I left school and I got out of school earlier than Carl. Because he was, I think he was a freshman in high school and I was still, I was, you know, elementary, something like that. Um, so I didn't, I didn't wait for him. I was like, I know the way home. I'll just ride my wet bike home. So I ride my bike home as fast as I can go. I know I'm going to get in trouble if Carl catches me and tells mom on me. So I'm going as fast as I can. And then Carl catches up to me, like literally, you know, probably 20 feet from our house. And he yells at me, and it scares me. So I look over my shoulder. I swerve into the road, and I got hit by a car. <gasps> oh my god! And then I, I tried to hide it from. Uh, I tried to hide my bicycle because it like bent the wheel up and stuff like that, and you know, basically told my parents couldn't couldn't do anything. 
you know, I couldn't ride my bike to school anymore. I needed to take the bus or have to ride. And then uh, the lady that hit me was actually a teacher. Uh, oh, so she and she came it. back later that afternoon to talk to my parents and tell, tell them that she hit me with their car and to make sure that I was okay. And then, of course, my mom tore my tail up for that. And then uh, my dad, like, raised a fuss with the city. And, like, two weeks later, they painted bicycle lanes onto the road. So there's still bicycle lanes there all because I got hit by a car right in front of the house. Nice. So you weren't badly injured? No, I just had a bruise on, like, the back of my knee, but... It just tore up my bike. I was I was all right. I was pliable at that age. And <laughs> yeah, very uh, bounceable. Um, yeah. So you couldn't ride your bike anymore, or was it just a wheel? Yeah, I just had to wait for my dad to fix the wheel, but he wasn't real excited about allowing me to ride my bike anymore. So yeah, that was the end of you riding your bike to school. <laughs> First day get hit by a car, you're done. <laughs> Yeah, and there was, I don't know, probably three or four years later, they they started letting us walk to school, and I had to walk Ryan to school. Carl still rode his bike, but me and Ryan were allowed to walk together. So what did you say? There's four or five years between you and Ryan? Four years between me and Ryan. Like okay. three years and 11 months. Uh-huh. He was born exactly four weeks before I am. Because I think I was there the... The year Ryan was born was the year you started kindergarten. So July of 86. So that been the following year, he would have been one when I started kindergarten. Okay, so was he walking? He might have been walking. So I wasn't there the summer that your mom had him. So it had to be that following summer. And I must've been there for his first birthday Yeah, because he wasn't an infant uh, infant, but it was before he had his surgery because he used to go down to Amy's house uh, for, yeah. for the babysitter. And when I was there, um, your mom would you know talk to me about what i wanted or how much i wanted or whatever to watch him for the day and she said you have to remember it has to be better than what amy's doing or i'm obviously going to take him to amy's house and this was way back in the day and I, i was like i don't know i mean i don't even know that Okay, so I was in my second year of ninth grade. Yeah, so I had plenty of babysitting experience. But, um, so I think she paid me $100 a week to watch him. And I think she still sent you to Amy's house. Yeah, that's like a, that's a good salary back then. Wasn't it? Yeah. (laughs) And I told her, because she picked the amount, because I didn't know. I think she was paying Amy like 150. I said that's fine. I said, but we're not playing this damn friggin' washing diapers, this cloth diaper shit. You're buying me a bag of diapers. I am yep, not we playing. Did cloth diapers. Oh God, that was horrible. She did cloth diapers on all of you. Yep. And whenever we I was watching the babies i'm like nope you can stop and buy me a bag of disposable diapers i don't i don't do that cloth because i was also there the summer not the summer you were born the summer after that 
And I watched you that summer too. And I think that summer I still got paid $100 a week. But I do remember Ryan that year. He was sitting in the high chair. So he had to be around a year old or just a year old. He was in the high chair eating. I want to say it was hot dogs. And was choking on a friggin' hot dog. And I remember your mom scooping up that whole damn high chair with him in it, turning it upside down and beating on his back until he spit out that damn hot dog. Yeah. So when I had babies, I remembered that vividly because I was scared to death. Um, I would take the hot dog, cut it lengthwise turn it, cut it lengthwise again, and then chop it. So I don't care if my kids put 20 pieces of hot dog in their mouth, they was not choking on it. All because Ryan choked on that damn hot dog. Yeah, when I was a kid, it was some of my earliest memories is when Ryan was a baby, and you know he was always choking. It was like every meal, he was choking. Wow. And he would turn blue quick. Yeah. And I remember your mom, just like, you know, it was nothing. She just flipped over that whole damn high chair with him in it. And she banged on him until it came out. Yeah, back in those days, she was kind of built like a linebacker. <laughs> yes, she was. I remember her picking up your damn dad. <laughs> I'm like, oh, so, shit. I remember that, that summer uh, as well for another significant emotional event in my life. <laughs> Grandma took me to H-E-B. And H-E-B is probably a mile. Yeah, your mom. Yes. A mile and a half from the house on Amber. And I didn't really know Grandma. This is like the first time I'd really met her. And she's like, hey, I'm going to do the grocery shopping. You just follow me. And she walked right through the toy aisle. And I got distracted by the toys. Imagine that. And then I turned around and she was gone. And I ran through that store. I looked every single aisle, every cash register. I went to the bathroom. I was, I'm five years old. I'm looking everywhere in this grocery store all by myself trying to find my grandma. So Can't nice. find her. So I was like, you know what? I will walk home. I know where it's at. I got to the first intersection. Nobody had ever told me how to look left and look right. I walked right in the intersection. almost got plowed down by a car. Oh and it was, the man it was the manager's ATV. And she took me straight to the ATV. And they called grandma all over the intercom. She picked me up, you know, took me home. She says, I'm going to have to tell your mom about this. Uh-oh. And my mom whipped me harder than I have ever been whipped before. She had me stripped down butt naked, and she had one of them big ham hocks across the back of my head, and she was holding me down and tearing me up. Oh, I so remember that. <laughs> I so remember that. And I remember crying for you. I was like, you can't do that. Because <laughs> we didn't do that. Like, me and It felt Russell, like she was whipping me for an hour. <laughs> it seemed that way. Me and Russell uh, were mom's seventh and eighth kids. So they, they were tired of raising kids. They were tired of disciplining kids. Just, just, you know, just stay the hell out of trouble. So mom's big thing was... Long as the cops don't knock on my door, I, I don't give a shit, whatever. So that was the goal. Just do whatever, but don't have the cops knock on the door. 
But so we didn't get our asses beat. We just didn't. I mean, they, they were tired of being parents by then. So when we went to Texas and, you know, your mom, Marie, she beat your damn asses. You stepped out of line and you were getting put right back in that line. And I remember going to my mom saying, oh, my God, what is she doing? Because <laughs> your mom was a big girl back then. Yeah. And, you know, my entire childhood, even up in my teenage years, there there was no getting away with anything. You didn't get it talking to. If you messed something up, you got tore up. Especially that was just the, the way it was. Call. It didn't matter who it was. And if nobody admitted to it, she couldn't figure out who it was, then everybody got some. Especially if the school called. Oh, man. I could remember. So if the school called, it was my mom's parents. My grandma and grandpa on my mom's side would have to come get us because she couldn't leave work. She would work downtown. Love them. Oh, dude. they. I will say that my grandparents never whooped me, but my grandmother and grandfather were such imposing figures that you were scared to death that they ever had to put their hands on. Oh, yeah. I was scared. They weren't my grandparents. I was scared. And when we grew up here, you don't say, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. It's just, it's it's not done here. So that was a shell shocker when I moved to Texas. When I answered whatever question the teacher asked me, I said, yes. He said, yes, what? I don't know. Yes. And he's like, that's yes, sir. I'm like, well, where the hell am I in a goddamn army? What the hell is this shit? And then I can see, you know, my classmates saying, yes, sir, no, sir. And I'm like, what the hell is this? The army? Nobody told me any of this. They just throw you the hell in there. We're going to rip you out of your life and throw you into this new one. And it's sink or swim. But so, yeah, your grandparents, I would... uh Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Then, because I was afraid of them, and they weren't even my grandparents. But they spoke with such authority that you just straightened your shit right up, and that was that. Yeah, there was no nonsense. Like when we were in our grandparents' house, there was no joking. Like you couldn't mess around with them, you couldn't prank them, you couldn't play games with them. They weren't into that. They were. Their job was to make sure that you were a productive member of society, and that was as far as their responsibility went. And they very much enforced respect. You yeah, absolutely. will respect every and all adults, and it's just that simple. You do not interrupt adult conversations. You do not put your two cents into an adult conversation. And like... So when I was there in fifth grade, so I had met your mom, you know, a couple other times on visits when they came up or whatever, but I never really got to know her, know her. But my thing in life is I was obsessed with babies. So if your mom kept having babies, hey, I'm going to keep on coming here. <laughs> but so I got to know her. A lot. Like, when I was there in fifth grade, I was still, I don't know, not very close to your mom. Like, I still loved her, but I wasn't, like, really close to her. When I was there for my second year in ninth grade, 
I got very close to her and she was, she was strict on me, but in a good way, cause she knew what direction I was going. And she yeah. knew because I was infatuated with babies that I was going to have a damn baby ASAP. But she was very good with me. She didn't have any girls. So she always wanted a girl. Yes. So, so take- Ryan was the only one out of us that was planned. And he was planned because she wanted a girl. And mm-hmm. she already had a girl's name picked out. She had already bought all the girl clothes. What she was, was it going to be? Down. It was going to be a girl. Uh, it was Ryan's name was supposed to be Megan. Oh, okay. And then it came out a boy again. She said, "All right." She told Jimmy he had to go get snipped. <laughs> so no more. We're not playing this game no more. <laughs> <laughs> now, so she was really good with me. She would, you know, me and her would have girl days. She'd take me to the mall. You know, we'd have conversations that my mother had, wasn't having with me because. My mother was almost 40 when she had me. Like, so I got really, really close to your mom. And to this day, I still love her to pieces. As you know, when we came down for your dad's funeral, my first thing was, how's your mom? Let's go see your mom. I, I need to see your mom. And she's not in good health right now. No, and you know, I'd say I had a, a pretty rough upbringing. You know, we didn't have a lot of money. We didn't get to do a lot of fun things or get a lot of experiences as kids. But you know, when after I joined the army and graduated high school, me and my mom got real, real close. We were, you know, basically best friends. We talked all the time. And then, yeah, after the deployment started stacking up, we kind of grew apart a little bit. And then uh, she became really, really close with Ryan, and she felt like she needed to kind of guide him because he was a little. Uh, He's kind of like you. He likes to jump off course whenever uh, he's left alone to his own devices. <laughs> <laughs> now, so what made you go into the service? Because uh, you were fresh out of high school when you went, right? I graduated high school on a Saturday and Sunday morning. I was on my way to Fort Knox, Kentucky for basic training. Damn. Were you even old enough? What's that? Were you even old enough? Yeah, so I was set. I turned 17 in August the year before. And then uh, you can join the Army at 17 if your parents emancipate you. So it's just an extra form they have to sign. Oh. So I went in at 17. Wow. But I remember, so when the Gulf War kicked off in 91, uh, my parents were still married. And I remember the night that it kicked off, my dad had the news on because he used to always watch six o'clock news. And uh, when it kicked off, I remember watching the old 91 footage of the war, you know, the green camera with the tracers and the bullets flying through the sky. Mm -hmm. And ever since then, I was infatuated with being in the military. I've always wanted to do that. I didn't, I didn't think I was going to get my opportunity to visit Iraq so often, but, uh, that wasn't on the game plan. Yeah. I I think I was nine years old when that happened. And, uh, it was kind of, I've always kind of been, always wanted to join the military since then. Wow. So how many tours in Iraq did you do? I I ended up doing four tours total. And how long were they a tour? 
two of them were six months. One was 12 months. One was 15 months. Damn. And during those periods, you can't contact anyone? Well, it just depends. So as I was there for the initial invasion, so we first kicked off March 20th of 2003, I was on the border in a Abrams tank crossing the border. So there was nothing set up. So we went, uh, let's see, probably three months before I got the call home. Wow. Now there was, um, so our first objective was about five days into the war. It took us five days of driving 24 hours a day to get there. And uh, once we got there, we cleared uh, an airfield in the southern Iraq, and uh, we were waiting on a flight. We were going to put the tanks on planes and do and do some other operation. And uh, there was an Air Force guy driving around on a four wheeler, like a quad, and he had a satellite phone on his uh, his like hooked to his belt. And he came over to see the tanks. He had never seen the tank in real life before. He's like, "Hey, man, can I see that tank?" And, we're like, hell yeah. I was like, dude, is that a phone on your, your, your hip? He goes, yeah. He goes, you want to use it? I said, I got 20 guys in my platoon. I said, you give my guys a couple minutes each. I said, I'll let you drive the tank. <laughs> so he passed the phone around and showed him how to dial to the United States. And I gave him a, a full tour of the tank. I took him in the driver's station and showed him how to use all the buttons. And I you know, started the tank up and I let him drive the tank for, you know, about five minutes or so. And we came back and everybody's done use the phone and, He's like, dude, that's the best, you know, that's the coolest thing I've ever done. That was awesome. Yeah, thanks so much. I was like, no problem, man. Just appreciate you, you know, let my guys call home. Now, were you a leader? <clears throat> no, nah, I was, uh, I was a sergeant, but I wasn't, I wasn't in charge of the platoon or anything. But uh-huh. it was, you know, in the military, especially in a, a combat operation very early on, uh, leadership is always around making plans and having meetings and doing rehearsals. So, a lot of the times, it was just the low enlisted guys hanging out on the tanks, just waiting for the next you know word to move. And I do remember them pictures of you being uh, in the tank. Now you said that they put the tanks on planes. Yeah. What the hell kind of plane can fly with tanks on it? So uh, a C seventeen is a built by Boeing. It's an Air Force plane, but you can put a fully combat loaded Abrams tank on a plane. Wow. One? And then it can, it, it can stop in about the length of a football field. So I think it, it flies, it takes off with the tank pretty slow. And then once it gets up in the air and then when you get to your destination, it'll just kind of fall out of the sky and they'll stop that thing on a dime, kick you out the back and they take off. Damn. Now, you know, Boeing's right here in Delaware. Yeah, there's a bunch of them. Oh, is there? Uh, there's a, yeah, they've got a big plant in Wichita, Kansas, where they actually build planes. Yeah, I don't know what they do over here. Um, I've had a couple friends work there. Yeah, so they have uh, like different branches of Boeing. They've got a military and then a civilian sector that build like pasture planes. Mm-hmm. So were you ever in Iraq the same time as uh, your brother Ryan? Yeah, so when I was there in 2005, Ryan, so I was... I had finished up my 12 months. I was, you know, a couple of weeks away from coming home and he had just gotten there for his very first deployment. And during his first deployment, he was a truck driver. He was moving heavy equipment mm-hmm. throughout the country. And he just happened to stop off at my base. Get out. He sent me an email. Yeah. He sent me an email and said, Hey, I'm coming through. I'm going to be stopping there tomorrow. 
where do you want to meet up? And I say, let's meet up at the Chow Hall wherever you get here. And uh, I had a bunch of stuff that I collected over the years. You know, like I had a local cell phone, um, like my Xbox and a TV and stuff like that that I gave to him just to make his life a little more comfortable so I was on the way out. Right. And then he just started his deployment and I just finished mine. That's the only time we ever overlapped. Now, I always thought, I guess it's old school, that you could only have one brother over there at a time. No, so it's, uh, you can only have one brother in the same unit at a time. Oh, because I thought all of your, I don't know, namesakes weren't allowed to be there at the same time, or... Yes, you just can't be in the same unit. So the, it comes from a, a situation in World War II where you had five brothers on the same ship. The ship went down, all five up and died. And there went the name. Yeah. Is that what the reasoning was behind it? Because it yeah. ends that name? So how old was Ryan when he went in? Right out so of Ryan was 17 too? when he went in. He went in a little bit earlier than I did. Yeah, Ryan had gotten in some trouble off and on through high school, and you know school wasn't really his thing. So he he went to alternative school so he could graduate a semester early. So he graduated in December of his senior year, and then went in the army in January. Oh, wow! So but it was so he graduated December '03, and I had just came back from Iraq in August of '03. So like as soon as I came back from Iraq. In 03, my dad always liked to make a big deal out of us whenever we did something. Uh, he made a huge deal about me going to fight in the war, and Ryan kind of saw that and said, hey, I want to do it too. So your dad has the four boys, and three of them went in the service. The only one that didn't was Carl. Yeah, correct. And how many tours did Ryan end up doing? Ryan did two to Iraq. He did one as a truck driver and then one as an artillery Mm-hmm. So when was it that uh, you got married? Uh, so I came back August 1st of 2003. My birthday is August 4th, and then I got married August 11th. So was that after your first tour? Yeah. So I I got back on the 1st. I turned 21 on the 4th, and then got married exactly seven days later. Wow. And you have a beautiful wife and two beautiful children. Do either one of your kids talk about going in the service? Uh, my son occasionally does. Um, he he kind of flip-flops behind, behind what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but how- he's, he's mentioned multiple times over the years that he wanted to join the Army. And how old is he now? Uh, he's 15, so yeah. he just finished his freshman year. Wow. I remember him being a little itty-bitty, too. Because, you know, then again, there's my infatuation with babies. <laughs> yeah, it seems like he saw all of us when we were one years old. So he saw me when I was one. He saw Ryan when he was one. And he saw Kayla when he was one. Yeah. In Florida. Yeah, I don't remember being around your daughter, though. I mean, at uh, that age. Yeah. Yeah, because she was older. I didn't meet your kids until the the family reunion we had in Florida. Yeah. That's when I got to meet your kids. So you and Ryan. Yeah, we, go ahead. 
No, so, yeah, when my kids were little, I was, like, I would spend a year in Iraq, a year home, a year in Iraq, a year home. It was, like, off and on. So I didn't really get to see them a whole lot, and they didn't really have a bond with me. Mm-hmm. So anytime that we did stuff, the kids were always stuck up mom's butt because they didn't really know who their dad was. They just knew he existed. Right. That's so sad that they would take you back so often for another tour when you haven't had time to bond with your own children. Yeah, but it's, it's kind of the nature of the, of the occupation. You're, you're a soldier 24-7, and uh, your family is, they'll help you take care of them, but the family is not a priority to the military mission. The mission is what the mission is. Right. The family's not included in the mission. So how long- so the army they've gotten a lot better about including families and trying to stabilize people at their duty stations and try to get them more time in between deployments. But back in those days, they didn't care. It wasn't yeah, a concern. Yeah, and there to should them. be a certain amount of time when you have a baby that you get to bond with that baby. Not that a six-month-old would remember you if you went away for a year anyway, because that's a really long time to go away. Yeah. So when Brooklyn was born. She was a month old, and I had to go to a school. I was gone for six months at a school, and then I came back for like two weeks, and then I went to Iraq. So, her, and then I was gone for twelve months. So, her first year and a half on Earth, I saw her for maybe five weeks of it. Wow! And you can't bond with a picture. I don't care how many pictures someone sends you. It's just you know, you just can't. No. So, how long were you in the service altogether? I retired after 16 years. I had a, I, I blew a disc out in my neck while doing a training mission in California and had to have surgery and it never healed correctly. So they gave me full medical retirement at 16. And how long did your brother Jimbo do? Uh, I think he did 17 or 18, maybe 19 years. I don't, I don't know. He kind of had the same uh, situation where he had a medical condition and uh, the army during that time that me and Jimbo both got out, uh, the army had gotten real big on if you can't go to Iraq, then we don't want you. Oh, that's a pleasant. They didn't. <laughs> yeah, they didn't want to waste any numbers on people they couldn't deploy. They only wanted people that could go down range. And how long was Ryan in? Ryan, let's see, died in 2013, so. I don't know if he hit his ninth year yet, his eight or nine years. Wow. So did you want to get into what happened to Ryan when he was home? You mean when he passed away? Yeah. Yeah, we can. Uh, yeah, Ryan had some, his first deployment was 15 months and he was a truck driver and these guys spent a lot of time on the road and it was right during the, it was that time period before we did the surge which was basically the most dangerous time you could be in Iraq and being on the road was the most dangerous place. So he had a pretty rough deployment when it came to explosives and, you know, getting attacked and stuff like that. And um, he, had some, he definitely had some PTSD issues and then, you know, alcoholism kind of runs in our family and you know, we both drank quite a bit. And then his second deployment, he was artilleryman, but it still wasn't a pleasant experience for him. Right. Uh, so, he, we were, so me, Ryan, and Jimbo were all stationed at Fort Sill together for a couple of years. And where is that? Oklahoma. Right. 
Yeah, so Jim, so Ryan was already there. That's what his his only duty station before uh, Fort Hood. So he spent his first, I think, seven years at Fort Sill. And then Jimbo was uh, at the, he was teaching at Fort Bliss, El Paso, and they moved that school to Fort Sill. So he kind of, he got forced to go to Fort Sill against his will. So him and Ryan were already there. And then I was in Iraq at the time. So I re-enlisted to stay in the Army and keep the duty station of choice to go to Port Sill so I could hang out with them. That had to be a great time. That was awesome. Uh, it was probably... Me and Ryan were always really close growing up because um, Carl was a little bit older and he left the house pretty pretty early. Um, and then after I had joined the Army, every time that I came home, my mom always like, hey, you've got to talk to your brother. You've got to get him to calm down. He's going nuts. You know, I, I, I've got to call the cops on him like twice a week to get him to bring him home. He's, you know, he won't come home. He won't do what he's supposed to. So I had to have a bunch of like man-to-man talks with him when he was a teenager. I was you know, still a teenager myself, but in the Army. And, and then forced uh, to be a man early. Yeah. And then he, he joined the Army right after I came back from Iraq. He had a couple of rough deployments. And then we were all at Fort Sill together. And I remember, so when I was in Iraq, that last deployment, I sent Mindy and the kids back to Texas. We were stationed in Washington, uh, back near Seattle. And uh, the school system wasn't really great up there. Like, kindergarten was optional. So, like, Brooklyn had just started kindergarten. It was half day, and all they were doing was finger pain and eating apples. <laughs> so they say y'all should go back to Texas and actually do some real kindergarten and so she went down there and it was like halfway through the first semester and she was already so far behind because they were doing stuff on computers and Brooklyn had all she knew how to do was clean paintbrushes <laughs> <laughs> and eat so when I came yeah so when I came back from Iraq they they had came up from Texas to Fort Sill uh, she, you know, basically drove up there, and then I had all of our stuff was in storage. I packed a U-Haul and drove a U-Haul, and then we met together. And, you know, she rented us a house and everything, and I, we moved everything in. But that first weekend, I think I got there on like a Wednesday. We unpacked the truck, and you know, uh, I think that that's the first Saturday. Ryan had called me at like six in the morning, and uh, we were only like half a mile from his house, and he's like, "Hey, dude, you know, come pick me up." So him and his wife had been fighting and arguing she had thrown all the stuff out in the front yard and tried to light his motorcycles on fire and all that oh. stuff so i picked him up and we picked all the stuff up and cops came and did a report and all that stuff and i said dude just move in with us like fuck this bitch. So it's like, like get rid of this, this girl she's just trouble i remember her yeah so he moved in with me that first weekend that i i got to oklahoma and he lived with me i think a year and a half before he moved to fort hood in texas mm-hmm um, but that was probably, if I have to look back in my 40 years on earth, that's probably the best year and a half of my life was a year and a half to get to live with him. And, you know, we're both adults and both had adult money and got to do adult things together. And it was kind of the, the best time of our lives. And then, and I'm sure he would say the same because he also got to be, you know, uncle Ryan. Yeah. And to, Ryan was always much better with the kids than I was. You know, I, I was never really into the whole parenting or the family thing. Like my job was to be a soldier and I, I dedicated 24 hours a day to being a soldier. And Ryan was able to separate the soldier and the family uh, mm-hmm. where I wasn't able to. So during that time, my kids really got to know him and they just absolutely loved him to death. Well, he was a very uh, affectionate 
uh, person too. Yeah, and he was awesome with the kids. Like my son has always been very challenging for me because he's he's very defiant, and you know I grew up where you don't talk back to your parents, and if you break something, you admit to it, and you take your ass whipping, and you just go about your day. And my son is always, you know, the total opposite of that. He's always trying to get away with stuff. Mm-hmm. And Ryan was, you know, much better at showing him love, um, where I was only there to be the disciplinarian. Um, so it was is a blessing you know, just for him to be able to stay with us and for my son to be able to see, you know, what a a real father figure should be versus, you know, what I was at that time. I I do remember you being hardcore, but that's also the way you were raised. Yeah, absolutely. Like there was no, uh, there's no negotiating in my house as a kid. Like, because I you do remember, what you're told, and you know that's exactly what you do. Yeah, and don't and ask there's why. There's expectations. You meet expectations. If you don't, you get tore up for it. And don't ask why. It's because I told yeah. you so. Because I remember when we were at the family reunion, and uh, Kale was just an infant, and you know, you and Ryan were partying like there was no tomorrow coming, and you know, I. I don't know. Since the time I was born, I always wanted to be a a wife and a mother. This was my goal. I probably had diapers on. So I was very in tune to kids, their needs and blah, blah, blah. And I remember pulling you to the side and saying to you, well, how about you watch the kids and let your wife have some fun? And you were like, oh, hell no. (laughs) Yeah. Next thing you know, there was a keg in your bathtub. I'm like, well, how's she going to give the baby a bath? And you were like, she can go to the other room. Yeah, not my problem. Yeah. Like, not my monkeys, not my zoo. Yeah, and they were your monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> they were yours. But at that point in your life, you and Ryan were self-medicating. Absolutely. With, with alcohol and I, I think the whole world uh, misses this part about these very young men. You were children when you went into the service. You didn't have coping skills. You didn't know how to cope with the shit that you seen and did. And this is what happens when they send these young men over there or even older men like no one tells you how to cope with it, how to process it. So these guys come home and they're drinking, they're doing drugs, they're, you know, zoning out. They want to be alone. They don't want to be with a family. And it, it's just sad that, you know, this country doesn't have enough resources to help these people. I mean, you're there protecting this country. Why can't your country protect you when you come home? Yeah, and for me, like, yeah, I, I did, you know, we were poor, but I grew up pretty sheltered. My mom didn't allow us to go spend the night at people's houses. We weren't allowed to roam the streets, you know. We weren't allowed to get in trouble because my mom knew that was the only thing that was going to happen if she gave us any freedom was we won't get in trouble. So when I first got freedom, I just kind of went crazy with it. Um, but, you know, I had, so my 2003 deployment was probably the hardest one for me mentally. And uh, the the hardest thing for me was sleep. I used to have extremely bad nightmares, wake up fighting and sweating and all that stuff. Uh, so alcohol was the only way I could sleep. 
I would go through 12 to 15 beers a night. You know, by the time I got home, seven, eight o'clock at night, I'd go through 12 to 15 beers and just drink myself, you know, asleep. To slumber. And then, yeah, and then I'd finally get some sleep and I'd be up at, you know, five in the morning and go run five miles and get on with my day. So... And Ryan did a lot of the same thing. And we were living together in Oklahoma. We used to alternate who bought a case of beer and we would run out of beer every night. That's a lot of beer. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where you were living when we went to the reunion, right? Uh, no. So when we were at the reunion, Ryan was in Oklahoma. Uh, I was back in Texas at the time. Oh, okay. I had just came back from deployment. So... So Ryan had already been on two tours when he came home that last time. Came home. Yeah, so he came back. So he was there all of 06, part of 07, and then he went back again in 2008 or 2009, Then I was there 09 to 10. Um, and then he left in late 2011 to go to Fort Hood. And then in 2012 is when I got promoted and I went to Hawaii. Because we were trying to keep the party going. When he got Fort Hood, because my entire career I'd been trying to get Fort Hood and I could never get it. I was always full or there was always some extenuating circumstance where I couldn't get there. And then so when I got promoted, I asked, Fort, I asked Hood. Fort Hood and they told me no. So why did yeah, you want Fort Hood? Because it was it's about an hour north of Austin. It was just closer to home. Okay. And you've, you've talked about this before, that the, the rules in Texas are a little bit more uh, free. We don't have as many rules, so it was always nice to be back in Texas where you can just kind of be American. Mm-hmm. So we're always trying to get back to Texas. <laughs> and we were Southern boys. We didn't really like that snow. Yeah. Or How old were you when you first seen your first snow? I just turned 18, so I graduated basic training, and my first duty station was in Kansas. <laughs> and I got there I got there in October. It was Carl's birthday. It was 70 degrees. The next day, it was 30 degrees and snowing. Damn. I was like, this is miserable. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. It's cold. <laughs> so when I lived in Texas, I found it so weird that on – Christmas, we had the damn air conditioner on. Yeah, we used to go to the beach and you know play football in the yard on Christmas Day. Yeah, that, you don't do that here. But now <laughs> you're getting a dose of that cold shit. Yeah, it's not that bad though. I've been in much worse places with the army. Like you think, you know, where Canada is actually south of us, but uh, it's the winters aren't that bad up here. Yeah, um, it seems like the last couple of years, we've had very mild winters. Like, I don't even think I've shoveled in years. Yeah, so we got a little bit of snow this year. But it was in, we didn't get like a whole bunch, we didn't get like a foot of snow at one time. We would get like four inches, and then two weeks later, we'd get four more inches, and two weeks later, we'd get four more inches. So I did a little bit of shoveling, but we didn't get like, overcome with snow like they know they normally get at least like one blizzard a year up here they say yeah because i remember I haven't, I haven't seen one yet when my son was in high school we got three foot of snow in one damn day and got like 10 inches the next day and i was like are you yeah. kidding me 
I haven't seen one of them yet. Yeah, we've had very mild winters lately. But I think it only got below zero once. Like it was. Well, that's the worst tired. of the winter is that that cold that cuts right through you and the ice. The snow's fine. I don't. I don't even mind driving in it, playing in it, whatever. But that ice and that twenty below zero, hell no. I'm not leaving my house. <laughs> So Ryan came home from his last tour and I wanted to get into what happened to him. He was only what, 25? Um, 26. I think he was about to turn 27. My math. Yeah. Yeah. He was about to turn 27. So you know, like I said, me and Ryan were both pretty heavy drinkers at the time, um, and we both have you know a lot of tattoos. We're we're into the tattoos and the motorcycle culture together. <laughs> uh, We've all had. He was in Fort Hood. Yeah, he was in Fort Hood. He was a member of a motorcycle club, and uh, they did a lot of riding and a lot of hanging out with the guys. But Ryan had a bunch of tattoos. But also, one of these things that most people don't know about Ryan is Ryan was scared to death of needles. So anytime he would get a tattoo, he would self-medicate. He'd, he'd go hit up somebody that had some pain pills, and he would take pain pills before. That way he was kind of doped out of his mind before they started cutting on him with the tattoo gun. Wow, he had a lot of tattoos, too. Yeah, but, so he did a lot of self-medicating. <laughs> uh, so so the day that he passed away, uh, one of the guys in his motorcycle club, they, uh, they wanted to go get matching tattoos on their hand, and uh, so they went to a sushi place, Ryan loves sushi, and they had some shots, had some beers, ate some sushi, and went to the tattoo parlor and got their uh, tattoos done. And by the time that he finished his tattoo, he'd been taking pills, and he'd been drinking all day. Uh, his From the tattoo shop to his house is only about six miles or so, and uh, it was pretty chilly. It was, I mean, it was January, so it was probably about 50 degrees in Texas, and his wife was nine months pregnant and she came up there to pick him up and he's like, I'm not leaving my bike here. I'm, I'm taking my bike home you know, one way or another. And then uh, what we think happened is he blacked out on his bike on the way home and did a culvert and ended up uh, jumping his bike and hit a, uh, a fence post in a tree. Oy. So we all, you know, got together and went to this funeral and it was just devastating that he was so young. His wife was ready to have his first child. Um, and his, everyone was completely devastated. I mean, that shouldn't happen to a 26 year old when his whole life is in front of him. But I think that like, I'm not trying to discount you or your brothers, but I think at your parents' age that it that really damaged the two of them. Absolutely. And it, it kind of a testament to the, the kind of person that Ryan was. You know, he was kind of wild, but Ryan, he gave 100% of himself to everybody around him and very little of himself to himself. Yeah, now he spent not... all of his time taking care of others and the... The when we were planning the funeral, there was two chapels at that church that we did it, and the the preacher said, you know, if we do it in the smaller chapel, it'll you know kind of make it look like it's more crowded, and it was standing room only. Like it just it's a testament to the kind of person he was, the amount of people that 
dropped everything they were doing to come pay their last respects. Yes, because he was a very uh, loving, affectionate, funny, uh, just so easy to get along with. Um, he was, he was just, you know, if, if you met him, you loved him. Yeah, I, I don't. Really he was my best friend. I mean, even up till you know the day that he died, me and him used to text and call. So I was in Hawaii. I was five hours behind time frame. Mm -hmm. So when he was getting up in the morning to go to work, I was on lunch. Or no, it was the other way around. He was on lunch where I was getting up to go to PT in the morning, and I would call him on my way to work. So it was like a thirty minute drive with traffic in Hawaii, and we'd sit there and talk for thirty minutes about. Just all the stupid stuff we've done and how the army sucks and all this other stuff. <laughs> so, like, every day we used to, you know, text and talk. There wasn't a day that went by that we didn't, you know, talk in depth. Right. And I know you used to were, like, you know, attached to the hip. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, you've moved on in life and that, you know, you are successful at what you do and you're a better father now than you ever were. And, you know, you recognize that you were self-medicating and, you know, it controlled all that. But I think, so your parents were what in their fifties? Oh, yeah. I think my mom was 57. My dad was 61. So it, it seemed to me from the outside, because of course I don't live in Texas where they live. Um, it just seems to me that they couldn't bounce back from that. I mean, I cannot imagine ever in my life, I pray to God, I never have to bury a child. That has to be the worst damn thing ever, ever. But it just seemed like it, it took them. Yeah, so for my mom, she never really recovered from it. Um, she's just kind of gradually gone downhill since that day. Uh, my dad, he really did spiral out of control for probably three or four years there. And then he kind of tried to pull himself up and kind of dedicate himself to helping other veterans. And he kind of found a calling in life. Uh, because of that situation, but it was incredibly painful for him to lose Ryan as well. Uh, but he, he was just, before he died, he was finally starting to get his, kind of find his calling in life, and that was helping other people. Yeah. Um, but, so didn't you? Yeah, and he just, he just died all of a sudden. Like, I, I had just talked to him the day before, and he was, you know, feeling fine, talking about going to get his, his second COVID shot so he could, you know, go do more volunteering at the VA place yeah so your dad built that uh veteran car yeah and, veteran tribute car yeah and you know it was for ryan and like you know we have a lot of family members that were in the service and he really did throw him whole self his whole self in into that um, so your mom ended up with dementia that they yeah, caused from trauma? Uh, yeah, so when she, so she'd worked for this law firm for over 30 years. And then uh, about a year after Ryan passed, they had laid her off. Um, and they basically used the excuse that she couldn't keep up and she couldn't learn new things. 
Um, and then she had tried to work at a couple other law firms, um, and she just couldn't grasp new technology. And they basically said that it was uh, a long, long-term depression that had led to uh, early onset dementia. Wow. Yeah, because your dad, my brother, he was a hot mess for years on end. But it seemed like once he started doing that car that, you know, he has some pep in his step. He was on top of things, you know, that and he was very proud of his boys. And, you know, how many names are on that veteran car? I guess I should have asked Jimbo because he has it now. Yeah, I, I don't remember. There's there's over 100 at Easy. So basically he put, you know, all of our family members on there that had served and had passed away. Um, and then he was a member of the Patriot Guard, which do the uh, flag line at uh, military funerals and the military honors for the military funerals. And uh, people that he had known and people from the community that had passed away in the service, he put their names on there as well. And then uh, he'd the actually, he was, he had started compiling a list of more names to add to it when he passed away. And the first time I've ever, uh, seen the guards, what are they called? The flag? The pa Patriot Guard. Patriot Guards was at Ryan's funeral and it was just, so beyond touching to see all these veterans outside at the funeral in just these long lines holding flags and paying their respects. And that was the first time I've ever seen that. Yeah, we, I had interactions with them, uh, when I was in the military. So when, when you're, uh, in a, a leadership position in the military and you're not currently deployed, uh, you do a lot of funeral details. So you're, I was on active duty and then I would have a team of 10 guys and we would practice every day holding flags and, and playing taps and doing the 21 gun salute and doing the presentation of the flag. And then when a military person died in our area, we would load up the truck and we would go to the funeral home and we would meet the funeral director and do the funeral for the family. Mm -hmm. So we met them a lot of the times doing military funerals. Um, and it doesn't matter where you're at in the United States. Uh, those guys are amazing. They really, uh, they take their job seriously and, you know, showing respect and, and protecting the family from all the shenanigans that happens in some of these you know, crazy groups that protest at military funerals. Yeah, it, they they were beyond exceptional at both the funerals, at Ryan's and your dad's. And we went around at both funerals and, you know, thanked them for being there. But it was just, you know, it, it was just so awesome that, you know, when you pull up there, you're grieving, you're sad. And you just see all these men and women with flags that are there showing their respect. And I mean, the line to Ryan's funeral, I thought the whole state of Texas was there. Yeah, it was packed. That was, uh, we weren't expecting that kind of turnout, but uh, it was amazing to see all those people that, you know, and a lot of military guys that he had served and deployed with, that they dropped everything they were doing and left whatever they were doing to come pay their respects. 
Yeah, and the the motorcycle club he was in, they were there, you know, and and it was good that, you know, a, a lot of the family was there and that we went out every night somewhere else to celebrate and they would all show up and celebrate his life with us. And yeah, that was kind of a, a thing that me and when Ryan was living with me in Oklahoma, we all, we talked about death a lot for some reason, but we would drink and talk about, man, this is how I want my funeral to go. And this is how I want my funeral to go. Uh, one of Ryan's things was like, you know, I don't want anybody to be sad. Like, when I when I leave this earth, I'm gonna leave this earth with my boots on, and everybody should have a drink and celebrate with me, and you know, close the chapter and move on to the next. And it, that happened quite a few nights when we were yeah. out there, and I made shirts for everybody with this picture on it, and so it wasn't just total sadness; it was also you know celebrating his life. His wife went on and had the baby and named her Lorelai Ryan. So her middle name yeah. is her dad's name. So that was sweet. Um, and then we, you know, a lot of us were together again when your father passed. And, you know, he had the same kind of funeral that, you know, they were there paying their respects and... You and uh, Jimbo drove his veteran's car there and took his ashes to the cemetery in his car, which was very respectful of, you know, you and Jimbo to do that, that he got his last ride in his most prized possession. Um, but... You know, I'm glad we got to do this podcast, and I want to thank you for your service. And is there anything else, you know, that that you wanted to talk about or anything? No, I mean we could uh, we could always do this again, and we could just tell funny stories about growing up in Texas with the boys if you like. Uh, I got all kinds of funny ones. Oh my God, that would be a blast. I got some good ones about Jimbo too, so you'll be glad to hear that. Yes, I, I love the <laughs> I love the funny ones, and I remember you being a badass too. Yeah, I remember. I was you. the I, we used to always joke that I was the short, fat brother because all the all my brothers were taller than I am, and then I was always kind of beefier than they were. Ryan was taller than I could. Yeah, yeah, Ryan was like an inch taller. I mean, he was the the third shortest. I was the fourth shortest. And, <laughs> you know, Carl's. Carl's like a damn Jolly Green Giant, and Jimbo's up there, too. His nickname was Lurch for a while. Yeah. Yep. You're not... Uh, is Jimbo taller than you? Oh, yeah. Uh, he doesn't look that tall anymore now that he's old, but... <laughs> he's younger than he's me. Definitely taller. Yeah. He's younger than me. That's not nice. <laughs> yeah, it's not the years, it's the miles. <laughs> yeah, true. So, um, we'll most definitely have to do that funny podcast because we can all use a giggle. But, you know, I'm glad that we got to, you know, remember your brother and your father, your your best friend, really. Um, so, we'll end the podcast here and we'll have you back on for a funny night. 
So I want to thank you for doing the podcast. I had a blast and I would love to do another one. Yeah, absolutely. I had a great time. Thank you for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. So let me know when we can do the other one. So I will put pictures of the veteran car on the social medias. You can follow me at Robin's Nest Podcast on Facebook or Instagram. And I'll put pictures up of my nephew, Keith, and the veteran car that my brother built. Until then, I will talk to you later. Thank you.